you've got a Bible, folks, turn with me to Song of Songs, uh, chapter 6. If you haven't got a Bible, someone at the back there will grab one for you. Song of Songs, uh, chapter 6. We've been working through this song together, this collection of uh, songs or poems in the Old Testament here. We've been spending a few weeks uh, just working through and really seeing what it is that the Lord wants to share with us as a church community and it is a collection of poems and it is sometimes maybe a little bit difficult just to pick up the thread of what's going on in the song but over the last few weeks there has been a a little bit of a narrative flow Uh, so we saw that the the main characters in the song this bride and husband they were preparing for their wedding we saw them enjoy their, their wedding day together and then we we heard of them consummating their marriage, bringing their marriage together in physical union. And then uh, last week we saw them enter into conflict and see them engage in that moment of conflict. The bride rejected her husband. Uh, but as we step into chapter six here, we see the husband and the bride coming together again. And this is what we see as we work through the rest of the chapter and we head into chapter seven. As the husband and the bride come together, we see that the bride, as she comes into the presence of her husband, she finds three things primarily. She finds confidence, she finds his loving affection, and then she finds that she is compelled to serve him. Compelled to serve him. Confidence, affection, And a real willingness to serve him. And remember, as we're studying uh, this song, it gives us some aspects of of wisdom uh, for human relationships, for for marriages. And and we've been able to explore some of the wisdom that we can glean as husbands and wives, those who are pursuing marriage, those even who are living in a single life at the moment. There is wisdom embedded in this beautiful song for us. But the real weight of this song is seen when we lift it up to the spiritual realities. And we see how it is that Christ relates to us, the church, all the way through scripture. We see that Christ relates to the church as a faithful husband would towards his bride. And that's the picture that we see throughout scripture. And it's the picture that we see again as we turn to chapter six. I'm going to pick up in verse for it's a long passage. I'm going to read all of uh, the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. Uh, so let's pick it up. Uh, Song of Song, uh, chapter 6, verse 4. And this is the husband speaking. You are beautiful as Teza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. <coughs> Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? She, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. 
Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Others, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. He, why should you look upon the Shulamites as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl and never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools and heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. She, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, some of these words and pictures are difficult for us to understand and maybe feel too intimate for us to enter into. But help us as we, as we turn to your word now, help us to see what it is to be your people and to receive and to enter into, into it an even deeper intimacy. Help us to know your love shown to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, we do believe that these are your words to us, that they are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that you would change us and conform us more into your beautiful image. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Imagine that you're standing on a beach. Maybe we all did this when we were younger. Some of us, I appreciate, don't like the beach. But those of us who are normal and like going to the beach, um, Matt has a thing about sand in his toes. You can ask him later. It's a bit strange. But imagine we're on the beach and you're standing in front of the sea and the sea has has gone out. So you're able to walk walk down towards the sea and and stand as the waves come crashing. And you're standing there and a big wave comes up and you... You just move a little bit backwards so your feet don't get wet and you, you just stand ready for the next wave to come in. And the next wave comes in, but it doesn't quite reach as far as that wave. And so you think, well, I'll wait and surely enough, one's going to come and it's going to you know, beat this wave. Have we done that before? Like we draw a little line, even just mentally and see if the, if the waves are going to keep coming in. And, and imagine we, we wait and another wave comes in, but still it doesn't match the strength of that first wave. And we keep waiting and we keep waiting. And as we're standing on our kind of imaginary line, we can be tempted into thinking because none of the waves are coming up further. We can be tempted into thinking that the sea is retreating and is heading back towards the ocean. Folks, the Christian life can often feel like that. 
the, the one moment we feel like we're growing in our faith, one moment it feels strong, one moment it feels like we're moving forward in our sanctification, and then all of a sudden, it feels like we're slipping backwards. Maybe we're entangled in sin. Maybe our affection towards Jesus has grown lukewarm. Maybe we've become apathetic to the mission. And when we feel like that, and it feels like our faith is regressing, we can quickly lose confidence. But come back with me to the beach. See, if we, if we waited long enough, what we would find is a wave would come in. And it would far outweigh the strength of that first wave that we saw. And, and if we came back in an hour or maybe a few hours' time, we would see that that whole area that we were standing on would be covered in the sea. And the sea will have encroached in the fullness of its strength. And Charles Spurgeon used that illustration as he was unpacking these verses here in chapter 6 of Song of Solomon. And as he talked about pictures standing at the beach, he goes on to say this. We'll put the quote up on the screen. He says, and so it is with the spiritual life. There are times when it seems as if sin has gained on you. And you are going back into spiritual things. There is cause for alarm, but not despair. Cause for watchfulness, but not for terror. Go to the Lord and pray to him to send a mightier wave of his irresistible grace. That your soul may be filled with all the fullness of God. The day is often gloomy at 11 o'clock. But that's no proof that you are not getting towards noon. Last week in chapter 5, we saw a picture of God's people in that place of seeming regression, that, that, that they were rejecting God. And it felt like the tide was moving out. But, but chapter 6 here, as we enter into it, is like that wave of irresistible grace that just washes over God's people. It just washes over us as we feel that we might have that sense that we're struggling in our faith. Chapter 6 is going to bring us back into the intimacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I... I know that some of us need that wave to wash over us today. That you've been battling with sin. That you've been contending to just move away from sin, but it's been a real wrestle. That you feel that lukewarmness towards Christ. You feel apathetic in the mission. Well, chapter 6 is going to bring that wave of irresistible grace. And it starts in verse 4 where we hear the husband speak. And he says this to his Bride, you are beautiful. You are lovely. You are awesome. That is a wave of grace over the sinner. And as we hear those words, as the bride hear those words, and we hear those words spoken over us, as Christ speaks to us, those words are meant to restore our confidence. They're meant to strengthen our confidence. That's what we see here in verse 4 and 5. We see in the presence of Christ... We find confidence. That's the first thing that we see this afternoon. In the presence of Christ, we find confidence. The husband says that, that his bride is majestic as, as troops with banners. Now, when a troop is waving banners, when they're waving the flag, they don't wave it when they're retreating. They don't wave it when they're, when they're being defeated. They don't wave it when they're turning their back and running away. An army that waves its banners is an army that is moving forward. It's an army that is winning. It's an army that is advancing. And most importantly, it is an army that has great confidence in their captain. 
And then in verse 5, we get this powerful picture of the husband looking at his bride and being overwhelmed in love for her. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Like, like that is it. When we think of who is saying these words, when we, when we raise the song into the spiritual reading and hear Christ read that over the church, that he is so overwhelmed in love for us, so overcome in love for his church, that he almost can't look at us. Like his desire for us is that strong. Folks, that should, that should thrill our hearts. Knowing the type of people that we are. Knowing the church that we are. Knowing that we are a people who have rejected our faithful husband, Jesus. And yet he receives us back and he says to us, you are altogether lovely. So lovely. I almost even can't look at you. Your beauty is that strong. Contrast that to our sinful state before he saved us. Like think of that picture in Isaiah 53. You know the one? When Isaiah looks towards the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and his physical appearance is, is that broken, is that marred because he is, he is bearing the weight of our sin. Think of the moral ugliness that every single one of us carries. And then think of the transformation that comes when Jesus pays the price for us on the cross. And now as he looks towards us, there is just overwhelming beauty in the place of moral ugliness. Friends, so often when we walk in repentance, we can know theologically that we are forgiven. We can know biblically that we are welcome in the presence of God. But so often we can lack the confidence that he actually wants us there. Brothers and sisters, you are welcome in the presence of God. You are so welcome. He is pleased that you are there. Because Jesus has covered your sin at the cross. He has clothed you in his righteousness. As you are found in his presence, he is overwhelmed in love for you. In the presence of Christ, we find confidence. So church, come to him. Come to him. And next we find in the presence of Christ, we find deep affection. Uh, earlier this year, as a church, we took some time to go through Jonah, the Old Testament prophet. And as the adults were um, studying Jonah downstairs for a few weeks, the young ones upstairs took some time to do some case studies on some, some missionaries of old. Uh, they did Gladys Aylward and um, who else did we do? Amy Carmichael and, and people like that. And one of the ones uh, that they did uh, was a, a chap called Eric Little. Eric Little was a missionary in the early 20th century, a missionary to China. But before he went to China, uh, he spent some time uh, as an Olympic runner for, for Britain. Uh, you'll know his story if you're a little bit older and you've watched the film Chariots of Fire. And in that film, you see a story being told. And, and the story goes like this. Uh, Eric Little, his, his uh, strongest event as a runner was the 200 meter sprint. And he was entered into the 200 meter sprint in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. He got through the heat and he ended up getting into the final. But unfortunately for him, the final was held on a Sunday. Eric Little was 
a man of God and, and his faith compelled him not to run on a Sunday. He didn't want to work on a Sunday. And so he gave up the opportunity to win gold in obedience to Christ. He entered instead into the 400 meter sprint and it wasn't his strongest event at all, but he entered uh, into it. And just before he got to the startup line, he made his way through uh, the finals. Uh, one of the team of um, uh, the US athletics team handed him a little piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, it was a quote from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 13. It said this, those who honor me, I will honor. And he read that piece of paper and put it away. And then he gets to the start line of the 400 meters and he just gives it everything. He runs the race and he wins gold. And as the, the film tells his story, it quotes him as saying these famous words. It'll come up on the screen here. God made me to be fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel the pleasure of God. And as Eric Little said that, he tapped into something that, that, that we, we so often are embarrassed to admit or we struggle to, to identify with. And it's this. God takes pleasure in his people. He actually likes us. <laughs> in chapter 6, verse 5 to 9 of the song, and chapter 7, verse 1 to 9, we get, we get this set of images, and, and maybe they're a little bit embarrassing to read, but... But what's happening here is the husband is, is communicating his deep delight in his bride. He uses these pictures and these images to, to show and communicate the strong affection that he has for his bride and to communicate the pleasure that he finds in her. Verse 8, if you look down there, you'll see in, um, in verse 6 that, that he, he describes Solomon's approach to love. So King Solomon his approach to love was this. Why have one wife when you can have 60? And why have 60 wives when you can have 80? And he didn't even stop there. He went on and, and accumulated 600 wives. But the husband says, that isn't, that isn't how I love you. That isn't how I love my bride. In verse 9, he says, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. She is unique to him. His love for her is exclusive and it is powerful. And as we lift up the song to, to see how Christ relates to his bride, to us, the church, a lot of us struggle to find that to be true, to, 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 to see that Christ loves us with, with a real depth of intimacy. We struggle to believe that Christ would love this, this broken and busted up and sinful body like he says he does. But he does. Isaiah, the prophet, it takes this picture of Christ being a faithful husband and the church, God's people, being his bride. And in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, it'll come up on the screen here. This is what Isaiah says. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then in Zephaniah 3.17, some of my favourite words we hear this the lord your god is in your midst a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you with his love he will exult over you with loud singing like he delights in his people he takes pleasure in his people and there's so much within us so often that wants to push back and say yeah yeah, yeah but 
But what about this sin that I've just committed? Or what about like, like how, can, how can you love me in that way when so often I don't love you in that way? Like my intensity of love is never going to match your intensity of love. Or, or what about when we find ourselves just coming back to the same sin over and over and over again. And we say, surely you can't still love me and take that intense pleasure in me. Well, he does. Jesus' death on a cross has dealt with the sins of his people and he has covered us in his righteousness. And so hear this, brothers and sisters, he rejoices over you. He delights in you. He exalts over you, not with singing, with loud singing. That word exult there in Zephaniah 3.17. It's this Hebrew word, or las. We don't use that word exult a lot. Or las. Or las literally means this. I love this. He jumps for joy. He jumps for joy over you with loud singing. I think the, I think the, the picture that, that Olaz is trying to evoke is something like this. Cast your mind back to when you were a little boy, little girl. And as it approached Christmas, it's just 29 days, guys, not long left. As it approached Christmas, you began to just draw the attention of your mum and dad to, to that toy in the shop. Right, So whenever you went to Asda or wherever it was and that, that toy that you really, really wanted, you just direct dad's attention or mum's attention to, don't forget, I really, really want that one. Or, you know, if you're really young, we used to get the Argos catalogue, right? And we'd circle in the Argos catalogue that toy that we really wanted early on in the year just to make sure mum and dad knew that that was the, that was the toy that we wanted. And we would wait, if we were good children, patiently, <laughs> patiently. Through the year, hoping and hoping that our parents would get us that gift. We would wait. And we would wait. And we would wait. And then Christmas Day would come. And we'd run down the stairs. And there'd be all those other presents down there. But it was the one. It was that one that we wanted, right? The Star Wars Lego, the baby doll, whatever it was, the one that we'd circled, the one that we desired all year long and had been waiting so patiently for. And we'd rip the wrapping off the box and we'd take out that present and there would be uncontrollable excitement. We'd be overwhelmed with happiness and folks, we would jump for joy. Friends, let me tell you this. The Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ set his affections on his people. And sin separated us from being in his presence. So God the Father sent his son to live amongst us. And Jesus came and he lived the life that we should have lived but we couldn't because of sin. Jesus lived in perfect obedience unto his father. He fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law. He lived a perfect life. The life that we couldn't live. And then in love he goes to the cross. And on the cross he dies the death that we should have died for our sin. He suffers the judgment and the punishment that we deserved. As he hangs on the cross, he makes full and perfect and final payments for all of our sins. He experiences hell in our place on the cross. And then three days later, he rises again, conquering Satan, sin and death, freeing his people and bringing his people into the presence of God. 
And as Jesus rose from the death, his father presented him a gift. Us. His long-awaited prize. The church. Here you are, son. And Jesus exults over us. He jumps for joy as he takes his reward. And he is overwhelmed with love as he claims his prize. His brothers and his sisters. Oh, church, would we see how much he loves us and see the deep and intense pleasure that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his people. The Bible tells us this. As Christ endured the pain and the suffering, the judgment that we should have endured on the cross, he endured that for what? The joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? The redemption of God's people. And now he has redeemed us. He cannot but rejoice over you. He cannot but exult over you with loud singing. He loves us, folks. Like, really loves us. Thanks, Michelle. In chapter 7 of the song, we see the husband just in almost... Too intimate detail. It feels a little bit uncomfortable reading it, doesn't it? He moves up and down the body of his bride and he shares just how her beauty captivates him. Look down with me in chapter 7. Her rounded thighs are like jewels. Her navel is rounded, a rounded bowl. Her belly is a heap of wheat. I don't know what he's getting at there, but he goes on and on and just use these these kind of intimate, evocative descriptions and he's swimming deep in her beauty. That's the point. In verse six, he comes up for breath just for a second. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. And then in verse seven, he dives back in. Verse eight and nine, he continues just to, just to describe her beauty. And folks, as we read this, it might make us uncomfortable, but, but it is a tasteful description of their coming together in love. And just as maybe we take a sidestep and just think of how this might help us in our relationships, it's helpful to see, uh, for those of us who are pursuing marriage or those of us who are married, that marriage is a place of tasteful, godly, physical intimacy. It's good to see that. But unfortunately, in our world, (coughs) pornography and things like that have wreaked havoc in that area. And folks, I'm not even just talking about Online content that is hard to get hold of. I'm talking about airbrushed, half-naked images that we see on the side of buses. Or on adverts for reality TV shows. Pornography and those kind of images totally distort our expectations of real physical beauty. Real physical intimacy. What we see here is that it's good for a husband and for a wife to admire and to enjoy each other's physical bodies in a way that is honouring, in a way that is tasteful, in a way that is right, in a way that is godly, in a way that is gentle and thoughtful. Husbands, delight in your wife's physical appearance, in your wife's physical appearance, not some, not some future curated version that you think that she will become. Wives, delight in your husband's body. 
Or in that finely crafted, chiseled image that you see on the TV, no delight in your husband's body. I want to say this, folks. If you've been affected by by pornography and those kind of things, and it's affected the way that you view your, your wife or affected the way that you view your husband, can I encourage you, bring that to the Lord. If you haven't already, confess, repent, turn away from, from that sin. If you're engaged in it right now, turn away from it. Come and get help. Find a mature, godly brother or sister and walk with them in it. And even if you're not engaged in it now, but it's left a scar, please come and pray with someone. But the picture of Christ here in the song, the picture of Christ in the church is powerful. And then we're to see this as we work through those images in chapter 7. We're to see that Jesus, folks, Jesus doesn't just appreciate us. No, no he, he deeply desires us. Through no good work of our own, through no effort or strength of our own, we have been washed with the grace of Jesus. That wave of irresistible grace should wash over us as we read these words. And we should be convinced that we are so loved by him. Don't listen to the voices that say that he doesn't love you because you've sinned again. Don't listen to the voices that that say he can't love you because your sin is too great. Don't listen to the voices that, that, that might say, oh, he does love you, but only because he has to. Saved sinner, when you are in his presence, Jesus Christ jumps for joy. He loves that you are there. And that adds an interesting dimension and dynamic to how we respond to the presence of the Lord. Think about our posture when we come together like this. On Sunday afternoon when we gather together knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is present by his spirit. Or when we gather in our gospel communities or we gather for prayer. So often we come together and we think, we think like this. We think, what am I going to get out of this this afternoon? What am I going to receive from, from 10 and up on a Sunday afternoon? Or even maybe when we're in a good place, we think, okay, how, how am I going to be able to serve my brothers and sisters? How, what are they going to get out of my presence? Well, how often do we think this? What's the Lord getting out of my presence this afternoon? What does he get out of me being here? See, the first half of chapter 7 isn't primarily about what the bride gets out of the presence of her husband. It's about the joy and the delight and the pleasure that he gets out of her presence. We hardly ever think like that, do we? So often we come to church and we leave thinking, okay, what did I get out of it? Well, the sermon was okay. The songs, I love the songs. We sung some of my favourite songs this afternoon. The coffee was average. You know, I I got these things out of it, but... But the emphasis here is that there's something going on on the other side of our relationship with Christ. He is actively delighting in us. He wants us in his presence. Yes, so that we will enjoy all the riches of his love and his peace. But also because he finds great joy in us. In the presence of Christ, we find deep affection. So church, come to him. Come to him. And lastly, in the presence of Christ, we are compelled to submit to him. In verse 9, the bride responds to the affection and adoration of her husband. 
The second half of 7 verse 9, she yields to his love. She says, may the wine go smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. So he has been, he has been delighting in her physicality and she responds poetically with saying, okay, take what you desire. And in verse 10, she declares her exclusive commitment to him. She says, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. And the implications for our human relationships, folks, are clear here. We're encouraged towards faithfulness. We're encouraged towards fidelity in our marriages. Husbands, you have eyes for one woman only, and it's your wife. Wives, you have eyes for one man only, and it is your husband. But how how does this reflect our relationship with Christ? Well, we are to come to a place of recognising all that he has done for us, come to a place of seeing his great love for us, and we are to submit to him. We're to yield to him. (coughs) Verse 11 to 13, the bride offers herself to her husband. She invites him to explore the fruits of their union together. She is willingly and joyfully submitting to him. That is the right response to someone who has loved you with such great intensity and faithfulness. And so for us, the right response to the love that Christ has shown us, it is to submit to him, to yield to him. Romans 12 verse 1 says it like this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or other translations would say, it is your reasonable response. In response to the mercy that we have been shown in Christ, in response to the finished work of the cross, the rational, logical, reasonable response is to submit to him. And submission, Christian submission, is letting go of our will, it's letting go of our plans, it's letting go of our dependence on human strength, human wisdom, and human resources. Christian submission is this, Jesus, I trust you with everything. With everything. And that kind of submission makes sense in the loving presence of Christ. So friends, I encourage you, let go and submit yourself to Jesus. For some of us this afternoon, that submission starts with letting go of of pursuing faith, uh, sorry, pursuing salvation in any other means than through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Submission for you looks like giving up the pursuit of trying to save yourself. Submission for you looks like coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and recognising that your only hope for salvation from Satan, sin and death is through the finished work of Christ alone, which is received by you by grace alone, through faith alone in his finished work. Friends, if that is you this afternoon, I implore you, let go of trying to find salvation in any other means. Let go and hold on to Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. And submit to him. But maybe for some of us this afternoon, submission looks like letting go of trying to control your circumstances. It looks like yielding to his will. 
There might be things in your life that, that you're just holding on to and you're trying to, to forge a path in your own strength, in your own wisdom, through your own resources. And maybe submission for you this afternoon looks like, okay, Jesus, I'm letting go. And I'm trusting that you are sovereign. I'm trusting that you are faithful. I'm trusting that all you want for me is your glory and my good. Or maybe for some of us this afternoon, submission looks like letting go of sin. That we've been holding on and treasuring, treasuring sin for a while now. And maybe it's come to the point where you need to let go. And you need to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to his holiness and invite the Holy Spirit to purge you. To bring a holy fire and to purge you of that sin that you've been holding on to for too long. Whatever it is, submission makes sense in the loving presence of Christ. As we close, just look back at chapter 6 verse 30. Because here we see how the life submitted to Christ is a life that is compelling to those around us. We get the, the poems spoken between the, the husband and the bride and every now and again their friends chip in and usually they say helpful things and they chip in at this point and they're just hearing this exchange of, of deep intimate love between one another and they chip in and they say return, return O Shulamite, return, return that we may look upon you. Now the Shulamite was, um, it was probably a reference to, to her being uh, like Solomon's wife. Shulamite was a, a derivative of, of Solomon's name. But the key thing here is that her friends love, they love her being around when she has been in the loving presence of her husband. They just want more of her. Like when they know that she's been surrounded by the love of her faithful husband, they just want her to be around her all the more. Come back, come back, come back, come back. Four times they urge her to come. I think the point is this. A life lived in confident submission to our loving Lord Jesus, that is an attractive life. A little bit like Moses. Remember when Moses went into the tabernacle? And he spent time in the loving presence of the Lord and he came out and his face just shone so bright. A life lived rightly in the loving presence of Christ will look different. It will stand out, it will be attractive, and it will draw others to see his beauty. So friends, come to him. Come to him. Find your confidence in his presence. Come to him. Know his love and his affection over you in his presence. Come to him. And as you come to him, submit to him. Let go and submit to him and trust that he is good, that he is faithful and that he loves us more than we could imagine. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We deserve nothing from you. So to read these words and see that wave of irresistible grace that comes towards your people. And to know the love that is found in your presence as we are found in your son. It is difficult to comprehend sometimes. So, so by the power of your spirit, just impress that truth and that reality into our hearts. 
Help us to know the love that you have for us, Jesus. The delight that you have in us as we are found in your presence. And in light of that love, help us to see that it, it is our reasonable, our logic, logical, our rational response to submit to you. Well, Jesus, there are things that we are holding on to here this afternoon that, that we need to let go of. And I just pray that by the power of your spirit, you would undo us with your love. As we sing, as we take this meal, that you might even use these elements just to, just to confirm in our hearts the deep love that you have for us, to confirm to us that you are better. And so help us, Holy Spirit. Help us to know the love that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to trust him. Help us to submit to him. And as we live those lives, we pray that others would see the love that we have received. And that they too would be drawn towards him. We pray this in Jesus' name. And for his glory alone. Amen.